Alright, G, hit it. Drum roll. What did the DNA say to the other DNA? Do these jeans make me look fat? <laughs> you know, a friend of mine didn't pay for his exorcist. Didn't pay his exorcist. He got repossessed. <laughs> what did the man name his dogs? Why did he name his dogs Rolex and Timex? Because they were watchdogs, G. That's a repeat. <laughs> man walks into a pet store and asks for a dozen bees. The clerk carefully counts out 13 bees on the counter. That's one too many, the customer said, and the clerk says, oh, it's a freebie. A freebie? Not <laughs> said the one about the insect. Oh, yeah. What do you call a mouse that squares? A cursor. <laughs> Took a while for that to click, didn't it? <laughs> a mouse who curses or swears, a cursor. <laughs> All right, we are in Second Kings 18. We're nearing the end. We're just on week 32. Okay, so from last week, Israel has fallen. The Assyrians now have that land and now we have uh, a new king in Judah and it says in verses 1 through 8 we're going to set the context in the third year of Hosea son of Elah king of Israel Hezekiah the son of Ahaz king of Judah began to reign he was 25 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem his mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehush Nehush Nehushtan. I guess. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered. Uh, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Now, um, is he the first one that destroyed the high places or did we have one other king? I, yeah, I think he might. I thought he was first. I think he's the first. I've studied it for so long, it's all they kind left, of running before together. Before they left the high places alone. They so we've not it. had a single king that destroyed that? I thought Josiah destroyed. Are we to Josiah? Where is Josiah? Have we already done Josiah? I think he passed away. I don't know. No, we've not done Josiah. Okay, oh. so Hezekiah is the very first king that got rid of the high places. Okay. So that, that was an interesting thing. He's, um, uh, 
one that trusted the Lord. He did what was right. He went further than any other uh, king had so far other than David. He dealt with all of the idolatrous sites and uh, instruments that they used. And he has a high compliment of doing according to all that David, his father, had done. So the result of his um, obedience to the Lord is prosperity, success, yeah. and as we'll see, even military uh, dominance. Because it's hard to take territory if the Lord's not with you. And, um, and so he's able to do that. And the Philistines, they were like thorns in their side. They were a seafaring people, but they were always causing problems, or there was always this conflict with them. Now, okay, so during his reign, and I'm not sure exactly when, he rebelled against Assyria, which tells us that obviously they were under Assyria uh, because they were paying tribute. At the point where he made this decision is where Sargon died and Sennacherib took over, which we saw that today with Putin. When there's a change of guard, then rogue or rebellious rulers will then make their move. Uh, and so here we see that he's like, okay, there's a change in the guard, and this is the opportune time to quit paying uh, tribute. And uh, so after he did that, Sennacherib, he didn't really deal with him at the point, at that point, because he was dealing with a whole bunch of other things. Also, Hezekiah made a, like a, a treaty, a loose treaty, with Marduk, the ruler in Babylon, who also rebelled. So now we're seeing Babylon again coming into the scene. It's not quite a superpower where it's going to uh, rise up and become a dominant force. However, it's on stage, and we know that because when Daniel was you know, in captivity, he basically listed Babylon as the first kingdom. And what would you say, like the first kingdom in a line of kingdoms toward the end of the age, probably? Like it was the first, and probably the reason for that is because Judah fell. And, and then if you go to Genesis, I think it's chapter 49, because there's markers. God will give us markers on the end of the age. So in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now this right here, these scriptures are messianic. You see the colt, you see the foal, uh, his garments washed in wine or his blood, right? So all of these are speaking of the Messiah, but in particular, verse 10, where it says, A scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In the New King James and King James, it says, uh, until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh is he whose right it is, is what that means in the original language. This is the Lord. So when you look at what's happening here with Israel and Judah, the fact that Babylon and then, uh, let's see, the Medo Persians, then Alexander the Great, and then the Roman Empire, the reason those are significant is the fir after Israel fell and then Judah fell, they only had like, um, what are those puppet rulers? They had rulers that were appointed by the nations that took over them. Okay, so they're called puppet rulers. So they had, they, they weren't legitimate kings that passed down. They were puppet rulers that nations put over them. Uh, and that for a while they didn't even have a ruler because when they were in Babylon, there was no such thing. So by the time Jesus came, there was a king again on the throne in Israel who was Herod. They called him the Great, probably the Great Mistake. Um, he was part Edomite or Edomian in the Greek and part Jewish. So for the first time in the history of Judah, there was a king that was not full-blooded Jewish or from the line of David, right? That was a signal. The religious leaders, that's why the Lord was amazed at him. He's like, you know, y'all can look outside and tell what weather is going to happen by looking at the sky, yet you can't discern the times. And so everything that the Old Testament, of which they were professionals, they should have known, when it says this, and there's not a king from Judah on the throne, that means Shiloh's there. But, now, devil's advocate, they were blind and they were deafened, but it was because of their own hardness of heart, right? So they couldn't see, which is a dangerous place to be. But that's why in Kings, these arrangements, the geopolitical things that are going on are so important. It's the same today. The geopolitical things that are going on are going to play a role in the end of the age. So we need to pay attention to the shifts and what all is occurring, especially when you start seeing like 10 kingdoms joining forces and, you know, a resurrection of a nation. Did y'all know? Okay, so this little side note. And I'm not saying that this is truth, but I find it interesting because inquiring minds want to know, right? Okay, so in Revelation, we have you you have to understand when you're studying Revelation and it's talking about the Antichrist and the beast and blah blah. The Antichrist and the beast, almost said beef. <laughs> is both a person and a kingdom. Okay, so it's really important to understand that because at times he's referring to the kingdom. At times he's referring to the Antichrist, which to God they're all one and the same, but there are specific things against the kingdom and then there are specific things that have to do with the man. One of those things is he will take a headshot and then he'll be resurrected. I remember back when I was in my, you know, teenage years, some wanted to know if maybe that was a hologram effect. Like, was he really resurrected, or was there a hologram likeness, blah, blah, blah. Don't know. But what I do find interesting, 
is they have now used holograms to move stuff. Do you know that? Mm-hmm. A hologram pushed objects. Yep. So, don't know if that's what that's talking about. I could go into other stuff that would blow y'all away and people would be like, what? And then they want to bring my tinfoil and put it on a tinfoil hat. But, I'm telling you, there's some technology, there's some things oh, yeah. that's happening that could actually set it up because I want to know how can the enemy resurrect a man? Life is in the right. power of God's hands. Uh, so unless God wants him resurrected, he ain't coming back. No, it's a, it's a false thing, the resurrection. So, or is a head wound referring to taking that, that kingdom out? Like it looks like it's taken out and then it resurrects. Because if you look at the context, it could be referring to the kingdom. So we don't know. We just know that Jesus came and that Babylon was the start of a shift toward his coming. And then, and, and then we got Assyria, who's not even included in the whole thing, except that Assyria, Babylon, all of them were caused by Nimrod. He's the one that founded these nations, and he was the first one-world ruler, and he was the first defiant in-your-face ruler, like, no, I'm not going to, we're going to consolidate our power, not against outside enemies. He's the first world ruler that was saying, we're going to consolidate our power against God. That's, that's, you know, and most, there's like world rulers and then there's antichrist people that their, their role is against God. Unfortunately, we have many of those in office. Okay, so he's a very interesting ruler. We're seeing this dynamic of alliances and nations coming on the scene. So he makes this uh, treaty with Babylon also, because uh, they had rebelled, and then he also had a temporary successful uprising to Egypt where, or led uh, an uprising, and there was like an invigoration of the 25th dynasty. So now we've got three, Babylon, Egypt, and Judah uh, joining forces against Sennacherib. They knew eventually he was going to attack for them not giving the tribute, so Hezekiah wisely began preparation for fortifying, for fortifying their cities, and I'm sure practicing warfare and you know making sure their skills are honed and hopefully some food and things like that. Okay, so that sets the scene because, like we like to say, you do not rise to the opportunity; you rise to the level of preparation. Right? So that's what he's doing. Okay, so in verse nine, we'll read nine uh, through twelve. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosean. Remember, he's the puppet king that uh, the king of Assyria put in. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Hebor, the river of Gozan, in the city of the Medes. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. Okay, I want to go back and just make this quick point. It's not in your notes. But in verse 4, where it says, He broke in pieces the bronze servant, serpent that Moses had made. Remember, that was when they were complaining 
and the serpents came out of nowhere and started biting them. And so he made this, and it's probably what's on, uh, what are those things called? Ambulances? Yeah. And actually that's kind of an interesting story of where that came from, but it probably looked very similar of a cross with this serpent, which was a prophetic picture of Christ becoming a curse for us on a tree. But here's the principle. If you stay in the past, you begin to worship it. It's that simple. Okay? So, a movement has the word move in it. <laughs> Meaning, if you ain't moving, you're just a mint. <laughs> so, you always have to be taking ground. If you're not taking ground, you'll settle then and become a monument. Monuments are erected to worship. That's why... The Lord, whenever he was transfigured, Peter, going back to a religious mindset, said, hey, we ought to do like three tabernacles or three monuments to this event. And the father is like, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, obviously, he you know, was a baritone and sounded much bigger than my voice. But don't get distracted by the past, good or bad. Because whether you're, you know, stuck in the good or stuck in the bad, either way you're stuck, and what will happen is it will become something you worship. So sure enough, here they have this serpent that they looked upon, and all of a sudden they were healed, and instead of, you know, celebrating that and moving on, they began to worship it. Okay? So that's just a little principle there. If you're stuck in the past, you'll begin to worship it. Okay. Now, Here's a quick caveat, caveat, good grief, what is wrong with me this morning? I cannot talk. To remind the readers that again, Israel has fallen into the hands of Assyria because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. So the author of this book is letting us know that the reason... Israel no longer exists is they refuse to obey the Lord and it's a life lesson of the two nations in contrast. But we know that actually they're sinning just as much, if not more, I think we learned last week, than Israel did. And so they're also um, on the uh, pathway to destruction. Okay, now verses 13 through 18. So now we're to the 14th year of King Hezekiah. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you oppose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent to Tartan the Rabsaris and Rabshekah with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And they came for the king... There came out to, the, or when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, 
the son of Asaph, the recorder. Okay, now, Lachish was a very important city to Judah. Let me read to you um, what the Lexham Bible Dictionary says about it. Lachish continued to enjoy a period of prosperity into the reign of Hezekiah. During this time, the city was densely populated, and the population rebuilt and enlarged its fortifications. The city gates from this period are the largest in Israel, according to Yusishkin, measured 80 by 80 feet. So how many stories would that be? Like eight? Eight, eight stories? Dang. You know what I'm saying? It's like a skyscraper. Lachish also featured a 200 by 360 feet courtyard that may have been used for practicing chariot maneuvers. Excavators recovered hundreds of jug handles bearing the Hebrew inscription LMLK, Limelech, or belonging to the king. The sun disc scarabs at Lachish more than uh, the sun disc scarabs at Lachish more than any other site in Israel. These have been dated to the reign of Hezekiah and belong to jugs of provisions Hezekiah may have sent to Lachish in anticipation of the Assyrian invasion. So we have history. We have evidence that this occurred. Okay, so the Assyrian invasion and conquest in 701 BC, Hezekiah revolted against Sennacherib, leading a coalition of other regional rulers against the Assyrians. The prophet Micah included Lachish in its list of cities that Sennacherib would destroy, which probably seemed impossible, right, for it to be destroyed. You know, you got eight-story tall, um, you know, gates, right? Okay. Lachish is perhaps most famous for its destruction at the hands of Sennacherib and his army during his retributive invasion of Judah depicted in wall reliefs found in Nineveh. One of the most prominent remains at the site is a siege ramp built by the Assyrians during the assault. It was built of large and small stones and topped with an earthen platform. As the Assyrians built their ramp, the Israelite defenders tried to counter them by raising the ground level on the other side of the wall in order to construct new defenses. This effort ultimately proved to be futile. A relief found by excavators in the ruins of Senate Cherub's palace at Nineveh vividly depicts the siege. It, allow, it shows Assyrian soldiers marching up the siege ramp in full battle gear armed with bows and arrows, spears and shields, and employing battering rams and siege towers under a hell of arrows and burning torches launched by the desperate Israelite defenders. The reliefs they found depicting this battle were eight feet tall by 80 feet long and wrapped around the room for all visitors to see and to be reminded to not mess with Assyria. Just pay your tribute and things will go well. <laughs> That's called showing off. You know what I'm saying? Smack talking, smack talking, which they have the proof, you know, to back up their smack, right? Okay, so now we have you know, this history. Now remember, Hezekiah and the people in Judah, they knew about this. They knew how they defeated Assyria. They knew what was going on, but they felt that they had God on their side. Okay, verse 19. And the Rabshika, which I'm not sure what that is, I'm assuming a representative, said to them, 
say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots, for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord told me, go up against this land and destroy it. Oh, now he's getting into some dangerous territory. Okay, first of all, this is 10 years later. Okay? 10 years later, from the point that Hezekiah quit paying tribute to now, that's how long it took him because, and there's another historical evidence, the Sennacherim prism calls Hezekiah overbearing and proud due to his role of partnering with Egypt and others to rebel. I guess Sennacherib had a lot of stuff he was dealing with, a lot of rebellion, a lot of things that he had to get in place. And that's why it took 10 years for him to finally deal with Judah, probably showing that they're not really that important in the scheme of things. But he's still not going to allow something like that to happen. Now, what's going on here is psychological warfare. Okay, first of all, he says, do you think mere words are strategy? In other words, what do you have to back up what you're saying? That could be said today of our government. You've got England refusing to talk with our president because he's screwing up the entire world. You know, they say, I heard this originally from Rick Joyner. He said, when America sneezes, a whole world has a heart attack. That's, what, that's a responsibility of a superpower. That's why you have to take it seriously and you have to steward the things you say, the things you do very carefully because you can destroy other kingdoms, right? To whom much is given, much is required. The fact that we're not wiped out is absolutely incredible at this point. But you've got this guy that can't string sentences together and so even terrorists won't talk to him. <laughs> England won't talk to him. Saudi Arabia won't talk to him because he's ruining everything. He's making everything harder for everybody. So it's the same thing. If we had a, a, anybody that, let's take Putin for example, do you think mere words are strategy? In other words, are you going to back up what you're saying? No, you're not going to back up what you're saying, right? So this is what he's doing, psychological warfare. Then he's trying to sow strife between uh, Hezekiah and his allies, reminding him that Egypt is not really much of a threat and uh, they will pierce the hand of anyone who tries to lean on them. In other words, you can't rely on them. They're going to turn on you or let you down at the very least. Then 
He goes to the heart of the problem that they've had from the beginning, and that's idolatry. So he's saying that this is happening to you because you got rid of the high places. So as a pagan, he's like, y'all have offended your God. Therefore, we're going to come against you because God told us to come against you. And we're going to, going to destroy you. So if you've got these people that are already in trouble because they're worshiping idols, their conscience is already, what, weird, right? It's already seared or they don't trust that God's going to take care of them because they know in their heart they've been doing wrong. And then this guy says the reason you're being attacked, it is religion. Religious people tell you the reason bad things are happening to you is because you made God mad. Right? Now, we know that sin can definitely start causing problems if it's unrepentant. But it's like, you know, if you get a cold, people are like, oh, you must have done something wrong. God's punishing you. Don't be a, what's his name? Rabshika. Don't be a Rabshika. Quit being a Rabshika. We need to remember that. Don't be a Rabshika. Okay, so we've got this doubt that he's sowing amongst the people. Verse 26. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshikah, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshikah said to him, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? Wow. Wow. You know, getting a little whoo getting a little nasty there okay here's the deal um he's speaking hebrew how did rab know hebrew like is he was he hebrew or did he purposely learn it for this very reason i mean it's kind of interesting aramaic is like english today so that was the language of diplomats and kings and that's what they you know the world language and so for him to be speaking Hebrew, now he's getting inside the mind, right, of the people that are actually going to be fighting his army, and he's letting them know, you guys are going to be eating poop and pee. <laughs> he's, yeah, gaslighting, threatening. So it's amazing that he knows the language, because that was, that was a language that was very tightly kept among the Hebrew people, and they almost lost it, remember? And there was a Jewish man that rediscovered and was able to revitalize the Hebrew language. Did that happen before they became a nation again? I think well, it did. Or so was it, it after? I don't know. Somewhere right around there. Yeah, it's very interesting. <laughs> it is. Okay, so then the Rabshika stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine, and each of you his own fig tree, and each of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, 
the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Uh-oh. Now he's picking a fight with God. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of whatever's Hina and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Whoops. Whoops. Okay. He's doing a tactic that governments still do to this day that our own government did to us during, um, let's just say, the plague. First of all, he was using fear, then aspiration. Okay? If you don't wear this mask, you're going to die. Not only that, you're a wicked, evil person because you're going to make others die. you got to have 57 vaccines and boosters. You can't go outside. You can't hug Grandma and Grandpa. You can't go to the store. You can't do nothing, you peasants. You stay at home. Because if you do, then it'll get over faster. We'll be able to get back to normal. If you don't, we're going to sit the law on you. Right? Bunch of terrorists. Exactly the same thing here. He's saying, first of all, we're going to wipe you completely out. But if you listen to us, you'll be able to stay and work your own land and eat from your own vines and fig trees and all of that stuff until we come and get you. But don't worry. Huh? It's for the greater good. Absolutely. Absolutely. You need to consider your neighbor. Do you want them to suffer as we come and rip uh, babies out of the womb? Oh, am I speaking about America today or back then? I don't know. But anyway, so all of this stuff is going on, right? And they're, you need to take care of your neighbor. But, but we're definitely going to wipe you out. And we're definitely going to take you to the other land. But there's honey. There's milk. You'll be well taken care of. Oh, that sounds like socialism. Huh, interesting. Okay, so basically this is this. If you listen to us, you'll have food and shelter before we exile you to land. It's just like yours. It'll be better. Don't worry. It's a trick always. And American people better wake up because when the government's using fear and threats and then aspiration, they're up to something. Okay? Like the the, what was it, the Apostle, a.k.a. Governor of New York, telling her disciples, they're her disciples, go out and evangelize, spread the good news of the vaccine, spread the good news of the boosters, blah, blah, blah. You're my disciples. Oh, yeah, she did it in the church. And then she gets COVID. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't laugh. But the irony is unbelievable, right? Mm -hmm. Wake up. Okay, verse 36. But the people were silent, and they didn't say nothing. For the king's command was, don't answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who's over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshikah. Don't be a Rabshikah. I cannot imagine the fear they were feeling because here's the deal you think that you have faith until you're confronted with a challenge that you've seen take out someone else right they saw what they did to Assyria or to Israel 
They probably even had people that fled that came into Judah. So they know, did you just break your pen? So they know what Assyria can do. And like I have said over and over, Assyria was the most brutal uh, military uh, fighters in the world. I mean, they were absolutely awful. And so even though you know, they're not like Americans. You know, they were definitely used to war. They were tough people. They had to, you know, grow their own food, hunt their own food. I mean, they had to do things that we can just order on our phones now. They were definitely tough, but it doesn't mean they weren't scared. So Hezekiah is just doing a fabulous job of keeping them calm and giving them the right commands. Okay, uh, verses 1 through 7. So as soon as uh, King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. And he sent, excuse me, Eliakim, who was over the household. Good grief, how many times do you have to repeat who these people are? I think we know. Shebna, uh, the secretary and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amaz. Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshika, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of the king Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the kings of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Okay, first of all, Hezekiah, now we've had other rulers that went to Egypt, other, you know, was it mainly Egypt where there are other nations they would go to? Make alliances and God would get mad. He's like, what am I, chopped liver? You know, why'd you go to them and not me? I can help you out. Hezekiah went to these other nations to form alliances, but he didn't put his trust in them because the very first thing he does is he goes to the prophet. What is God saying? That's the difference. He trusted the Lord. It ain't, it's kind of like, where is your faith level? So if your faith level is to go to a doctor, here's the difference, which I have no problem with. But if you go to a doctor, is your faith in the doctor or is your faith in God? Okay? Do you trust God for your healing? Because doctor is man. They can't bring healing to your body, but God can. However, God gave them and endowed them with a unique uh, uh, skill level. They can definitely be helpful. So the motive is what's important. The other kings didn't trust God, and they weren't following God. Therefore, they tried to trust other nations. Hezekiah trusts God, and so God doesn't mind him working with other nations for mutual benefit. Okay, But if he didn't trust God, God would have a problem. Now, the word revile, it means to blaspheme, to describe the conscious verbal abuse of a person or God. Punishment for this sin was possible death or at least being cut off from the community of God's people. Whether the Assyrian knew he was consciously abusing God 
Now, and he may not have because he was a pagan. The reality is that he picked a fight with God and God took it personal. Uh-oh. Can't win a fight with God. Verse 8. The Rashika returned. And he found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the he, uh, king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, Behold, he has set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done in all the lands, devoting them to destruction. Shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden who are in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city I can't pronounce, and the city of Hena, or the king of Iva? Okay, so it appears that the prince of Ethiopia came to help Hezekiah. Sennacherib heard about it, and then Terhaka, which is also Terhaqua, was the brother of the new pharaoh, Shabitku, and he later became king in 690. Okay, so this is just a little world history here, right? Verse 14. Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread the letter before the Lord. And he prayed and said, O Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Oh my goodness. Okay, there's so much in this. The main thing is, he had a problem. So he took that problem that was in a letter form, and he went and he laid it before the Lord. I've done that. When we first started paying off our credit card bills, I took all of them. And I put them on my desk, and I laid my hands, and I said, Lord, I need your help paying all of these off, because if you don't help us, we're going to go bankrupt. I did this. I'm not blaming you at all. This was my decision, but I need your help. And then I, it was a Psalm 139.5. He's in your future. He meets you there, but he also is in your past to protect you from it, right? And so I quoted that scripture, and then I just executed the plan he gave me, okay? So this is what's happening. He has a problem, so he's taking it before the Lord, and he's showing him. But did you also notice his confidence was in that he knew God? Because he says, absolutely, absolutely this king definitely defeated other lands. Yes, he definitely was able to conquer because they weren't gods. If he didn't know God, if he worshipped those other gods, they would have been wiped out. It would have been over. So the fact that he knew God, he knew that they weren't really gods, that was his evidence that he presented in the courtroom to Father to deliver them. The, uh, what's it called? Sanhedrin. 
The Sanhedrin consisted of one dude that was over it and then six other elders. Okay? In heaven, it's the Sanhedrin. Uh, 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 good grief. What did I just say? Sanhedrin. I got synagogue in my head and all of a sudden Sanhedrin left. Where it talks about in Revelation where the Lord comes in and sits on his throne and the elders throw their crowns at his feet and they're worshiping him, that is literally Sanhedrin in the, the Greek. So that court system was modeled after heavens. Therefore, he's going into the Sanhedrin and he's saying, I need a verdict. Well, here's God's verdict. Verse 20, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word the Lord has spoken concerning him. Smackdown time. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses or cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you, shall that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Now let me stop there. What is he saying? He's saying, I chose you as an instrument of judgment, but now... Sir, you've gotten too big for your britches. You picked a fight with the one that created you. Now you're in trouble. While their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out, coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, now listen, and your complacency has come to my ears. That's very important. I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way which you came. Okay, this is shocking to me. I've never seen it until I started studying. You know, that's the thing. Even though it takes us decades to get through a book in the Bible, what I like about going through them systematically is you have all of the context. You have it all. You know what I mean? You see things you won't see when you piecemeal it. You know, the Bible's not Facebook. It's not sound bites, right? It's you got to dig into it and get the entire story. So because we've gone through this and 32 weeks later, it's like, wow. You know, you're seeing stuff that happened then. You're seeing patterns in other nations. You're seeing stuff occur that you may not have seen if it's piecemealed. Okay. God is reminding them, I'm the one that sets you as a superpower to judge other nations. He knows when he sets down, when he goes out, when he comes in, and raging against him. The word raging means to shake, to tremble, to agitate, to disturb, to rouse up, to rage, and to provoke. Basically, all Sennacherib has done is disturb, rouse, and provoke the one true God. Okay. Assyria 
by raging against God reminds me of BLM and Antifa raging and trembling and causing people to be provoked in our cities all across 2020. America's burning, okay? That is the same thing. Now, I'm not saying that they're like a Siri and they rip wounds. Well, actually, they probably do um, believe in abortion. What I am saying is that when you start doing stuff like that, you're going to be in trouble. So what's happened? Hey, BLM, where's all this millions of dollars that you've been given? Where has it been used? Why do you have all these houses and mansions all over the place? What are they for? So even corrupt systems will turn on people if they start provoking and raging people. Okay? Very interesting. But I want to put our attention on complacency. That, I thought that was weird. He says, you've raged against me and your complacency have, has come to my ears. I'm like, what? Okay, this is the second place I've seen this. This was also an indictment against uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. The word complacency means, quote, to be at ease, to be quiet, to be complacent. It refers to a condition of relative tranquility, undisturbed security, and safety without worries. Mm. It also means, quote, arrogant, <clears throat> proud, and insolence that can easily arise from being the top dog. In other words, the Assyrian king viewed himself as invincible. Therefore, God was going to put a hook in his nose and a bit in his mouth. The Assyrians often led captives away with a rope fastened to a hook that pierced either the nose or the lower lip. So God was going to do the same thing and make them go back <coughs> to where they came from in humiliation. The captor would then become the captive. Does complacency sound about any country you know about? We gotta humble ourselves as a nation because we're in trouble. We think that we're invincible. We think that we're uh, the world's babysitters and referees. I mean, we're definitely in that uh, place and it's kind of nerve wracking actually. Okay, let's finish up. Verse 29, and this shall be a sign for you the year, this year, eat what grows of itself, and the second year, what springs of the same, and then the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. So he's basically letting them know that you're going to live in your land and you're going to eat from your crops. You don't need to worry about going to Assyria and eating from those crops. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. Wait a minute, I thought he's supposed to be killed. We'll get to that. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adrimelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword 
and escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. He died 20 years after this. Yeah, so you got to know that a lot of times in the book of Kings, it's like a fast forward, you know, of the story. So the angel, an angel, they didn't even have to get their weapons polished. They didn't even have to pull their Hellcat. You know what I mean? One angel, bam, wiped out 185,000 enemy troops. Okay? So I don't know why. It might be in... um, uh, the Chronicles, why his own sons killed him, I'm not sure. But I do know from my research that that happened 20 years later. So what it means is that judgment delayed is not judgment... Uh, deferred. Deferred, yes. It will eventually happen. Unless you repent, God will eventually find you. And he will deal with you, right? So it's a very interesting story. And it, it just is even more nerve-wracking. <laughs> like... I've been asking the Lord a lot, what is your perspective on America? And I have to ask him that all the time. Because one thing, you know, studying these stories, it's like, you know, I mean, we're not Israel, right? But we did make a covenant with God when we founded this country. And it's just nerve-wracking that we've been breaking our words. So anyway, any questions or anything that you want to add? All right. Well, let's pray and uh, do our tithes and offerings. So, Father, we thank you so much for the word. Father, you know my main concern for America has been complacency. We've been a we're a fairly young nation, actually, when you compare us to other nations that have been around hundreds, if not thousands of years. Egypt, in particular, has been around over four. But, Father, the complacency. That's what has me concerned. The pride and the insolence of thinking that we can make you our enemy. We can push you out of our government. We can push you out of our schools. And we can push you out of American culture and thought. And Father, there's been a systematic, methodical execution of a plan by the enemy using useful idiots, really, to execute a plan to get us into complacency, get us into the position where it requires your judgment. However, Father, the good news is there are at least 10 of us in this nation. We have people praying for America. We have people running for office. We have people in the marketplace bringing about legitimate change. We have people that are through urgent education um, letting Americans know how was this country formed? What did the Declaration of uh, Independence ensure? What is the purpose of the Constitution? There are people that are actively obeying you and moving to restore this country back to its original intent that you had for it. So, Father, I ask that you help us, and I ask that you help us uh, to do this, and I ask that you hear the threats of those that have made you their enemy, that you hear their raging, that you see their corruption, that you see their pride and their insolence, that you see that they have purposefully made you their enemy and Christians their enemy. Father, I pray you hear their words that the, the uh, ultra-maga people are the greatest threat to this nation. I pray, Father, you hear their words because when they say that, 
they're, they're saying that against people like me, people like my family and my friends that believe in you, that are patriots, that believe in the Second Amendment, that believe in freedom of religion and speech, that believe in spreading the good news, Father. They're speaking about us, your people. This is the same thing. We've got entire religious groups that are bought and paid for by Soros, spreading false doctrine. And so, Father, I pray that you encourage us, strengthen us, harden us up when it comes to the fight that's on our hands, that we are not ever people that relent or turn back, but instead we continue forward because we believe in your vision for this country. So I ask that you help us to make it a nation once again under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Get us out of our complacency. Get us back into fervor. I ask that you do this, and it seems like an impossible task, but it's not because no word from God is impossible to come to pass. So, Father, this morning, as our pledge of allegiance to you, we take the money that we have earned in the marketplace and we cheerfully give it to you. We ask that you sanctify, bless us, and help us to make more so that we can do the tasks that you have assigned to us as a people, as individuals. We give it to you without compulsion, no witchcraft, manipulation. We give it to you cheerfully this morning. And we ask Jesus that you receive our tithes and offerings and give us wisdom on how to distribute your funds according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.